We welcome you back to Senior Moments with Bob Johnson. After a brief hiatus for the holidays, we return today energized and excited to begin Season 2 of this podcast series. Those of you loyal listeners who have shared our inaugural first season should be well aware of Bob's military service during the period of the Korean War. Today he shares those experiences, many of which illustrate that humor can emerge from otherwise serious circumstances and the major role that fate plays in the trajectory of our lives. Therefore, we are pleased to welcome your mentor and host, Bob Johnson, for Season 2, Episode 11, entitled, Drafted. Bob, welcome back for our second season, uh, and I've certainly enjoyed the first. We're fully aware that you were in the U.S. military, and before we do anything else, I would like to thank you and your colleagues, both past and present, uh, among the armed services uh, for your service over the years. Before we uh, get into the the true storylines... I would like to ask if you have any introductory remarks uh, regarding today's topic, Bob versus the Army Drafted. Well, yes, as a matter of fact, I'd kind of like to start out with a a disclaimer, uh, like some of those medical uh, ads that you see on on television these days. I was in the Army in 1951, and I'm in 1951 to 53, and I had some experiences, some of which I will relate today, uh, and some of them which pointed fun at the Army, uh, because the Army of 1951 was very, very different from the Army of today. I found that out recently when I visited Fort Jackson here in Columbia, South Carolina, which is the largest of the basic training units in the United States, apparently. And I was extremely impressed with the quality of those volunteer uh, soldiers, uh, men and women, who were performing for us and uh, saw some of the basic training techniques that they have today. Uh, They were all very well equipped and very well dressed. And and it was quite a contrast with the Army of those days. So I'm very proud of the U.S. Army today. I guess I was proud of it when I was in it, but in a different way. And uh, I just want to say we can all be very confident as Americans that from my observations so far, we are very, very well equipped with an Army and some people we can be very, very proud of. Just uh, to uh, start the story itself, Uh, Back in 1950, I graduated from college. On the day after my graduation, I heard a radio broadcast that North Korea had had invaded South Korea. And uh, the fact that that was going to affect my life in a very profound way went right over my head at the time. I think we have to remember that in 1951, the people were very tired of war. We just had uh, four years of very serious war with Japan and Germany, which killed a great many American men and women. The the country was glad to get back to a peacetime level. 
and uh, the amount of money that was given to the military was drastically reduced. And they, they decided that uh, anybody who went into the Army those days uh, as a recruit uh, before the draft started would be willing to use the old equipment and the old uh, rifles that, that nobody really was worried about a new Army because we didn't think we were going to have another war. Shortly after my graduation uh, from college, I started our work in a training development program with a very fine company in Springfield, Massachusetts, and uh, my career was just uh, uh, moving along very well. Uh, the uh, war in, uh, in Korea seemed to have developed in the right direction, and it didn't look as though there was going to be a problem, and then things kind of turned around. My draft board actually was in Rochester, New York, which is where I, uh, near where I grew up. But I took my physical exam for the draft, which was introduced, reintroduced about that time uh, in Springfield, Massachusetts. Now, since I was uh, seven years old, I've had very poor eyesight. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of the uh, early prescriptions uh, that I read said that my eyesight without glasses was 2600, which is a long way from 2020. And I kind of made the unwarranted assumption that I would be of no use to the Army in combat because if I lost my glasses, I would be totally helpless, and a blind man on a battlefield is not a very happy experience. So I didn't even really think much about the draft. I went to my, take my Army physic, or the physical in Springfield, Massachusetts, and the man said, took my glasses off, and he said, now, uh, would you read that chart? And I said, where is the chart? I finally found the chart with my eyes, and I could see the big E, but that was the extent of it. And so I walked out of there saying, well, that's the last I'll ever have to do with the U.S. Army. And not long after that, my boss came to see me, and he said, hey, Bob, what are your chances of being drafted? We're trying to make our manpower plans, and we want to know if we're going to have to replace you. I said, not a chance with my eyesight. <laughs> They'd never consider taking me, which shows what a great prophet I was, because about three weeks later, I got a letter that started with the word greetings. Now, if you ever get a letter with the word greetings, you know you're in trouble because Uncle Sam uh, goes on to say, Johnson, you're going to report for military service one month from today, and uh, be sure to be there because we have ways of making sure that you are. Your acceptance through the draft was, was probably, and certainly sounds like, quite a uh, surprise to you given your eyesight problem. But I, I wanted to ask, at that point in your life, what was your attitude, belief uh, regarding service duty, your allegiance to the, the government, and your overall patriotism? That's a, an interesting question. My first reaction to the greetings letter was, gosh, this is kind of inconvenient. Uh, I was uh, making good progress in my career with the company, and uh, to take two years out for something uh, uh, that I hadn't wanted to do uh, didn't seem to be very well timed. But on the other hand, I had grown up during the years of World War II. I turned uh, 17 uh, about two weeks after the war ended, and I was in uh, had all kinds of patriotism for my country. And it never even occurred to me to say, well, gee, I don't want to go. I, it just was a feeling that, well, if they need me, I'll go because it's an obligation I owe to my country uh, in which uh, I had great faith and still do, as a matter of fact. And uh, it was just one of those things that uh, we, we had to deal with. 
Before I move on to my own experiences uh, with the U.S. Army, I might give some background on what was happening in the Korean War for those of you who may be historically challenged about that time of, the, uh, of our country's history. MacArthur had worked out a plan to land behind the North Koreans who had initially almost pushed us out into the sea, our, uh, our ill-equipped army. MacArthur made a landing at Incheon. We, we drove on into North Korea from South Korea. We actually were approaching the Yalu River, which was the border between North Korea and China. And at that point, the Chinese, who had only had a, that particular government of communism for two years, felt that we were maybe going to invade China, which would have been kind of dumb to do. But uh, uh, they were worried about it. And so instead of fighting North Korea, which we had pretty much beaten at that point, the Chinese sent one million quote-unquote volunteer soldiers into our, uh, across the Yalu to attack our men. And it now became a really, really nasty war. And that is why the draft boards were uh, saying, if you can uh, see lightning or hear thunder, you're in the army, fella. And uh, I was one of those people who was picked up because the government needed more and more soldiers because otherwise we were going to get pushed right out of South Korea and have some extremely difficult international problems. Well, with that summation, now you've been drafted and uh, take us from there in this adventure. Okay, I reported for duty on April 13 of, uh, of that year. Uh, it's a good thing I wasn't superstitious because uh, we took a bus ride down to Fort Dix, which was the reception center. We wound up in a barracks number 13. And interestingly enough, I was at Fort Dix for 13 days. So uh, if I had been superstitious, which I'm not, uh, I would have been in a lot of trouble. Okay, we arrived in, uh, at Fort Dix, Dix on a bus, uh, probably 30 of us civilians from the Rochester area, and a young man in a uni crisp uniform jumped onto the bus, started giving us all this information about uh, what we could expect over the next few days in the reception center. And one of the, our group said, boy, how long have you been in the Army? And he said, two days. Well, we thought an orientation by a man who'd been in the Army for two days was kind of they were kind of stretching a point, but at any rate, he did a good job. The uh, experience of being in a reception center is especially <laughs> exciting because all of a sudden you are put together with people who are from many, many different areas. And it happened that in our uh, little barracks where we were all crowded together in double and triple bunks, that uh, many of the people coming in from other areas were from big cities. And many of them were from big cities that uh, uh, did not have quite the economic conditions that we had out in the countryside. Many of their, their language was such that I had never heard in my life. And uh, I, I tried not to learn some of the words I was hearing because I was quite astonished to hear it. On the very first day, we were called out into Ford formation about 5.30 in the morning. And uh, they uh, asked for volunteers. Most of us knew that you would never volunteer for anything in the Army, so our hands were down, but a few fellows volunteered, and they were marched off, and the rest of us were put to work scrubbing floors and, and doing make-work jobs around uh, while the Army tried to decide what to do with us. The men that were marched off uh, as volunteers came back all excited. They had been uh, assigned to work to clean up the whack barracks, the Women's Army Corps, and a lot of the girls were around. The guys spent half their time during the day chatting up the girls and having a wonderful time. 
And so the very next day when we were called out at 5.30 in the morning, they said, we need some volunteers. And just about everybody's hand went up, including mine, of course. And although I was happily engaged at the time, I thought it might be fun to talk with some women's army girls. They marched in me and a few others over to the mess hall, where we spent 14 hours scrubbing dishes uh, and pots and pans and cleaning out grease pits and being directed by people whose IQ appeared to be well below the ambient temperature. At any rate, uh, that was uh, the the second day at Fort Dix. While the Army decided what to do with us, they kept finding make-work projects of one sort or another, some of which were kind of unpleasant, uh, being over and dealing with garbage and stuff like that. And so about the third day, I figured out that if I grabbed a broom and walked around with a broom, nobody would realize I didn't have a job. And it worked very well for most of the rest of my time at Fort Dix. I won't, uh, wouldn't recommend that today. You probably wouldn't get away with it. But uh, it worked for me, and I avoided a lot of garbage and pots and pans while at Fort Dix as a result of that little a ruse on my part. Well, that was an important lesson that you learned. Curiously, did you ever use a similar ploy in your civilian work as to the uh, broom? In my civilian work? Yes. Uh, no, I can't recall that. Uh, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps you can uh, elucidate that a little bit because I'm not aware of having tried that. There was a, a famous Seinfeld television episode where George learned the trick. If you look frustrated and angry at your desk, they assume you're working very hard. Uh, I'm just wondering if that broom lesson has ever served you since the Army. (laughs) Not not that I can recall, but it sounds like a good idea. If I ever start in business again, which is highly unlikely, I will certainly uh, try that technique. Okay, after uh, my 13 days at uh, Fort Hood, uh, I received uh, orders to um, be on a train along with a number of other men headed for Texas, the area of Colleen, Texas, where there was a Fort Hood. And I was to be a member of the 1st Armored Division, which sounded pretty exciting to me. I thought that really was going to be pretty neat. So we took a train ride down to Texas, got off uh, in the middle of a wilderness. I hadn't realized how much <laughs> how much open space there was in Texas. And they marched us to a place which was loaded with tents. I had gotten the impression earlier that Fort Hood had barracks and things like that. Well, it turned out we were assigned to f- North Fort Hood, which was all uh, really a tent city and a sea of mud. And uh, one of the first things we learned is that you have to have your boots shined very well at night, and then you are called out in the morning and you stand in six inches of mud, which doesn't do much for the shiny boots. But at any rate, Fort Hood was uh, in really in two parts. One was North Fort Hood, which is where the tents were, and then the barracks were in the south area as well, as a matter of fact. Most of my basic training, which we're going to talk about next, was in the area of South Fort Hood uh, and, um, uh, excuse me, it was at North Fort Hood. And uh, so we spent a lot of time in those tents and we had a lot of rain and a lot of mud. As a matter of fact, at one point I came down with what I thought was It had to be a case of the flu. I was about as sick as I've ever been in my life. And everybody else marched off to uh, learn how to dig foxholes in mud. And uh, I decided to go on sick call. And so I went to 
a tent where there was a doctor in residence. In spite of the fact that I thought I was near death, uh, he assigned me for light duty, which consisted of sitting on a slab of concrete, about the only one they had at North Fort Hood, sitting on a slab of concrete with a hammer in my hand and a bucket of old rusty bent nails. And I sat on that concrete and my job was to straighten those nails. That shows how hard up the army was in those days. Uh, so that they could be used for construction of various kinds. So that was uh, my experience with the, the uh, matter of going on sick call. I can't recall that I ever went on sick call again. I decided it was better to suffer. But I never did learn how to dig a foxhole, interestingly enough. While we're on the subject of medicine, I want to talk about shots. One of the uh, tough parts of being in the Army is they give you a lot of shots in the arm and they don't tell you what they're for. Uh, many times you'll get the five or six shots all in the same at the same time. There'll be somebody standing on either side sliding needles, needles into your arm. I've seen big husky guys collapse because they tried to watch that needle go in and it just uh, uh, caused them to faint dead away. I learned very early on, don't look. Just look, stare straight ahead. Another thing I learned early on is that the Army has poor records on keeping shots. And uh, so... When they gave us pieces of paper that showed what shots we had had after it was all done, uh, we were told to treasure those shot records because if the Army ever said, hey, we don't think we gave you the bubonic plague shot, we can say, yes, you did on such and such a date. Here's the written proof. And believe it or not, I still have my shot record from the Army, figuring that if the Pentagon calls someday and says, Johnson, you, you're due for a black death shot, why, I'll say, no, you know, I'm not. Here's my shot record. I don't recall that anybody in the United States was dying of bubonic plague or black death in those days, but uh, in fact, I thought it was about 500 years earlier that they'd had those plagues, but uh, the Army wasn't going to take any chances. As I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the Army was uh, short of equipment and uh, even uniforms. Uh, I was issued a set of uh, khaki pants with the girth of 48. I was a 32 at the time. And when I protested to the sergeant that, that I could get two of me in there, those pants, he said, hang on to them. Uh, someday you'll be able to turn them in and get the right size, but we don't have your right size right now. Uh, I, fortunately, I had another pair, so I was able to survive with that. Uh, actually, at, at this point, I was uh, assigned to the 4th Medium Tank Battalion in the 1st Armored Division and got a job uh, to type in uh, division headquarters, the S2 section first. I, I looked around when I went in and reported to the captain who ran that section. I just said, well, where is my typewriter? And he said, it's over there on the floor. And I said, well, uh, uh, where, where's the typing table? And he said, oh, you're going to build that. And I said, well, where is the lumber to build that? And he said, uh, go out and steal some. This is another introduction to the U.S. Army of 1951. So I wandered around the area. I finally found a pile of lumber that nobody happened to be watching at the time. I brought it back. He came up with a hammer and some of those nails I had straightened, and I put together a typing test. Shortly after that, I was transferred to the S3 section, so somebody else got to use my, my typing desk. Now, basic training. We had... Uh, a number of different things that led me to believe I wasn't really being trained properly for combat. Hand grenade, for example. I got to throw one hand grenade, and uh, there was a, a wall on my left side, and I was sitting on a bench, and the, 
the um, young man whose, <laughs> uh, whose job it was to make sure I threw the grenade properly showed me how to pull the pin out. And it turned out I put the grenade in my left hand, I pulled the pin with my right hand, uh, threw the pin away, and then I realized I had this grenade in my hand. I better change hands, which is not a good idea because the minute you let loose of the handle, that grenade starts to pop and uh, it got about three or four seconds before it explodes. And this poor young man turned white. He said, throw it, throw it. And I threw it over. Bazooka training. That The bazooka was a uh, World War II weapon, which uh, was designed to uh, shoot, for allowed infantrymen to throw a projectile or to uh, project a projectile at a tank. And sometimes they actually would destroy a tank. They marched us out to a field the day we were to have our bazooka training. We all stood in formation and watched. We're a hundred yards away. Uh, two men with a, a tube that looked like a might be the kind of bazooka we had seen in the movies. They fired a bazooka at the tank. They hit the tank, and we were then marched back to where we lived uh, in our tents and said, "Okay, you have now had bazooka training. You're ready for combat." And we said, we had never even got close to a bazooka. And they said, well, yeah, you'll understand as it goes along. We did get to fire rifles on the firing range, I'm happy to say. And uh, that was well done. And very often they would have uh, targets of men in the, out in the uh, down, downward area of the firing range, which we were supposed to shoot at. And they would go up and down. Uh, now, they didn't go up and down like uh, you would expect if they were done mechanically. We later, later learned that there were men in holes, and they would push the, uh, the uh, cardboard replicas of uh, people for us to shoot at up in the air. And then before I knew it, I was assigned to be in one of those places to pull targets. Uh, I had never seen a scorpion in my life, having grown up in upstate New York. I, as I got down in this little foxhole, or little hole that was about as tall as I was, and I had a cardboard target and a stick to push up in the air when they told us to for people to shoot at. I looked around, and between all of the boards that were holding the, uh, the dirt away from collapsing on the hole we were in were scorpions staring at me. And I counted, there must have been a hundred scorpions looking at me, and it occurred to me that the scorpions were kind of a serious problem if you happen to uh, uh, get stung by one. But fortunately, the, the scorpions decided to leave me alone, and I sure as the dickens let them alone, so no problem. I spent in uh, two years in the 1st Armored Division, and during that time I spent 30 seconds in a tank. This was an M4 Sherman tank left over from World War II, and it was part of our basic training. They wanted us to see what a tank looked like on the inside. Uh, I went in the top turret and uh, one and uh, looked around, and it didn't look like a very nice place to be. And I said, well, if the turret is, is blocked, how do you get out of this thing? And he showed me a little trap door in the floor of the tank between the tank treads that uh, you could uh, get out if your tank was on fire. It struck me that uh, tanking could, uh, being a, a tanker, uh, could have some, some very uh, downside. <laughs> and I uh, later learned that it certainly did. Interestingly enough, there was another man in our unit, the only other one who had worse eyesight than I did. His glasses were thicker than Coke bottles, and they assigned him his job. He became a tank gunner, and I certainly wouldn't have wanted to be on the battlefield if he was the gunner. 
One of the scariest and uh, uh, most realistic parts of our basic training was we had to crawl across a field that was covered with barbed wire and, uh, and coils, and we had to crawl around underneath the barbed wire. The temptation, of course, was to stand up, but while we were doing that, uh, they had a machine gun, a couple of machine guns, spewing bullets over our heads. So we were supposed to be getting what uh, training and what combat was really like. And uh, when I finished that one, I was saying, gosh, I wouldn't be at all disappointed if I didn't have to go into combat. That didn't look like a lot of fun. One other thing that uh, I thought was kind of funny in the Army uh, uh, and during basic training was uh, I was put on guard duty. And they told me I was guarding uh, in the middle of the night. I think I went on at midnight and was on duty till 4 o'clock or something like that. That uh, There was $10 million worth of equipment that I was guarding. They handed me my M1 carbine, and I said, it's, it's not loaded. And they said, no, no, we don't want you to have bullets. And I said, how can I guard all this equipment with, uh, with no bullets? And they said, well, just act like you know what you're doing. So for four hours, I acted like I knew what I was doing, walking around in the pitch dark, uh, guarding equipment. Fortunately, nobody tried to steal a tank during that time, so I didn't have a problem. Your basic training experiences sounded uh, interesting and, and maybe less than optimal by your description, but I did wonder, there, there certainly was some live ammunition and some, some dangerous uh, maneuvers that you were involved in. Were you aware of any incidents or injuries to your, your fellow trainees uh, during these maneuvers? The only one that I can recall is every once in a while on the hottest days in Texas, and it gets mighty hot in the summertime in Texas, uh, they would make us run four miles, and not walk, but run four miles carrying quite a bit of equipment. And uh, one day uh, we came back from that, and uh, we were all sweating profusely, but uh, one fellow decided he had to have a shower, and he went in. Someone had forgotten to light up the boiler that day, so he wound up taking an ice-cold shower. And we learned later that he died as a result of the shock to his heart for taking an ice-cold shower after all that running. That's about the only incident that I can recall uh, when we went on maneuvers. Uh, some people were injured, of course, uh, out in the field. I can think of a couple of times uh, when I was in the field, when I had uh, interesting situations. Uh, the first time was uh, when I happened to uh, have a few minutes in the morning before I had a job, and so I uh, I pulled out my uh, helmet and I got some hot water and my razor and I was able to shave and I had just started to shave and the captain said to me, Bob, get up on the half track and man the 50 caliber. Well, I happened to know there was no North Korean or Chinese soldier within 8,000 miles and I said, oh, captain, I just started to shave. That's when I learned about military discipline. He showed remarkable patience, but it was obvious that he was irritated. <laughs> he said, Johnson, get up on that half track and handle that 50 caliber. And at that point, I dropped everything and hopped up on the half track. And as I said, that's when I learned about military discipline. Another time when out in the field, at night you didn't really have a, a bed to sleep on. You weren't allowed to sleep in any of the vehicles. And so I uh, rigged my, my sleeping bag on the ground and settled in with uh, my uniform and boots on, which I usually did when you were on maneuvers. And uh, the morning I woke up and there was a copperhead snake about three feet from my head. He apparently had been heading for my sleeping bag and in the cold uh, night wanted to get in the sleeping bag with me. And the copperheads tend to be fairly poisonous. And I thought, well, by golly, that I was really lucky. Then I said, 
what killed him? Then I saw the tread of a jeep running over this copperhead. And I thought, well, that jeep could have run over me. Unfortunately, it didn't. And uh, that's one of the close calls I had while in the service. Obviously, fate was with you. Well, thank goodness you survived that experience, but that brought you back to your desk job at battalion headquarters. Yes, I had a good relationship with a lieutenant who was running my part of the operation, and one day he said, Johnson, would you go over to such and such a parking lot? I left my car there, and bring it back. I need the car, and I need to have something else to do at the time. So I walked across the post and got into his car and discovered to my horror it was a what they called a fluid drive. Now I had never driven anything in my life that didn't have a, four, a gear shift on the floor and four gears and all that. And so I spent quite a bit of time trying to get his car started, not knowing quite that you had to have it in park. This parking lot was on the side of a hill and I finally decided, well, if I run it forward a little bit like I always worked whenever I couldn't get my car at home to start, uh, this would work. So I tried it, and to my horror, we went right down the side of the hill onto a parade ground. And here I was in the lieutenant's car, in the middle of a parade ground, and I thought, sure, I was going to wind up in a lot of trouble. Finally, by accident, I guess it was, I got it into park and got it started and got out of there before the MPs came along and asked what this PFC was doing in the lieutenant's car. I had a a good uh, desk job at the time. I should mention that the 1st Armored Division was not being trained as a unit to go someplace and fight. The 1st Armored Division was there to provide basic training and uh, advanced training to young men to send them to Korea one at a time to fight. And uh, each month we uh, looked at the list to see uh, what was our name on the list to go to Korea to fight. Because when you got over there, they didn't care what you'd done in the United States. They just handed you a rifle and told you go, to go to it. Along about this time, I was told by my boss that uh, in spite of the job I was doing in, uh, in desk work, they thought I'd make a great tank commander. That's the poor guy that sits in the top of the tank with his head out of the turret that everybody shoots at and uh, tells the driver where to go and tells the gunner when to shoot and all that. And of course, uh, f- with my feeling that I should do what I was told to do, uh, it's the only way to survive in the Army, uh, I said, yes, sir. And I can't remember whether where the school was. It might have been in Kansas and, or it might have been in Kentucky. I'm not sure which, but I was all set to go to the school and they had a really a monsoon-type flood up in that state, and it pretty much washed out all of their training ground. And my trip up there to uh, study how to be a tank commander and a target for everybody uh, was canceled, and the subject never came up again. So I, uh, in a sense, dodged a bullet. I wasn't sure that I wanted my service for my country to be a target for the rest of the world. Again, I think fate intervened. About this time, I began to think about the fact that in spite of my uh, feeling about my uh, eyesight, uh, if my glasses were lost, which can happen in combat, the Army didn't seem to be worried about that part of it, but I was worried about it because I did not want to let everybody else down on the, on the battlefield if I wound up in one. And so I uh, stepped next door to the uh, infirmary and I talked with a doctor about uh, his attitude toward the thing, and he said, hey, I've got a friend up in division headquarters. I think you'd be better assigned there anyway. And uh, when the word came through to my 
current unit, the 1st Armored Division, one of the captains there said, I'm going to see that you're cart marshal Johnson. You weren't supposed to step across that parking lot and talk to somebody. You were supposed to uh, get a pr approval for anything you did. But uh, something happened, I think maybe that that captain who was going to court martial me uh, had a uh, home problem and he forgot all about me. And so that kind of uh, uh, went by the board. So there was, uh, I avoided a court martial and uh, was transferred up to division headquarters in the G1 section. And G1 tends to be the personnel part of the army. It was headed by a colonel, but the guy who really ran things was the chief clerk, a master sergeant named Sergeant Wagoner. And uh, that gives me a chance, this gives me a chance to tell about another close call I had. Sergeant Wagner really ran the, uh, the operation. One day I was uh, in there, and uh, one of the very first few days I'd been in this office, uh, and uh, I saw a picture on the wall of a girl, and I said, who's the... And it, I was thinking of using one of those words I'd learned, learned from the guys from New Jersey at the reception center, just to show I was one of the guys, and which would have been a pejorative for that female. And somewhere in the middle of the sentence, my brain came to attention and said, Johnson, be careful. And so I said, who's the pretty girl? And Sergeant Wagoner standing behind me said, that's my wife. And I said to myself, Johnson, you just avoided one of the worst things that could have happened to you because he would have had you on the way to Korea in, within the next five minutes if you had said what originally was in your mind. And that's when I learned, think before you speak, which is a lesson everybody should keep in mind at all times. Maybe a month after that, uh, Sergeant Wagner was thinking about transferring himself to Panama because he was tired of being in, in Texas. And the colonel uh, asked me to write something for him. Uh, and I wrote it up for him and he looked at it and he said, okay, you're gonna do all my writing from now on. So I became a ghostwriter for the colonel. Sergeant Wagner did get uh, transferred and I became chief clerk of the section, which was kind of a neat thing because it ultimately led to my becoming a sergeant before discharge. That life became pretty good, and then all of a sudden, one day, my name come, came up on the Korea transfer list. And so I uh, accepted it. You know, the Army works in mysterious ways sometimes. And the, uh, all of a sudden, they said, no, that order's been canceled. And I said, how come? And they said, somebody else volunteered. Well, in later years, I realized it was probably because I could write for the colonel that got me switched since he was head of the unit that is responsible for the location of people. The volunteer was likely named Fate. <laughs> Actually, this uh, turned out to be uh, the beginning of a pretty good uh, a part of my Army life. Uh, I just had a few months to go. Uh, my wife came down uh, to Texas to be with me. We'd gotten married uh, a few months before. And uh, things seemed to be going pretty well. I got promoted to sergeant, as I mentioned, and uh, things seemed to be coming along just the way I wanted them to at that point. One other thing I recall during this period, kind of amusing, uh, one day the uh, captain told me to go across, walk across the post and pick up something for him. It was quite a lengthy walk because it was a very big post. And so I grabbed my, uh, we actually had uh, suntan helmets uh, because of the heat in the Texas uh, heat. So I grabbed my hat and I started walking across the field. I think I was a private at that time, so I didn't have any, uh, uh, anything on my arm to indicate my rank. And all of a sudden, people started saluting me. 
And I kind of half-heartedly saluted back, thinking they were making fun of me. And the next thing I knew, a lieutenant, a commissioned officer, saluted me. About that time, I figured out I must have a problem of some sort. I don't know what it is. So when I got to my destination, I looked at my hat. I had grabbed the captain's hat with his silver bars on it, walked all the way across the post, and I probably could would have been in the brig still today if they figured out I was trying to impersonate an officer. Going back, I, I took the captain's bars off my hat, <laughs> and nobody saluted me walking back. Well, Bob, on a previous podcast, uh, the topic of which was your observation of a uh, atom bomb explosion, we recall those details, and that occurred at some point during this military career. Why don't you tell us again a little bit about when this occurred and what exactly that involved? Okay, I think I had advanced to the level of a PFC at this point. And uh, one day I was uh, told, this was in November of my first year. Remember, I went in the Army in April. This was November. We'd finished basic training and advanced training, and I had a job in the office. And I was told the captain wanted to see me. And so I went in to see the captain, wondering what, uh, what he had in his mind. And he said, uh, you're going out to Nevada to uh, observe an at- atomic bomb test. And I said, oh, is the whole division going? And he said, no, just you. And I said, well, well, what about our company? Isn't somebody from our company going? He said, no, just you. And I said, why me? And he said, I haven't the slightest idea. Here's your rail ticket. It's a round trip, fortunately. And uh, we'll hope to see you back someday, maybe. And that was my introduction to seeing an atomic bomb blast. I guess uh, I went out to Nevada to see the bomb go off. It was a Hiroshima-type bomb. We had no protection whatsoever from the uh, radiation. We went down to ground zero within half an hour after the bomb went off. I think later on the Army figured that probably wasn't such a good idea, but uh, by then it had happened to us. Later on, the Atomic Energy Commission said, uh, based on the little badge they had put on my front, uh, I hadn't received a whole lot more radiation than normal. And the fact of the matter is, here at age 91, I still haven't suffered any result. So uh, uh, that, that's a happy ending to that story. So then I went on to uh, be discharged from the Army on April 12, 1953, uh, feeling that uh, it uh, had been a, a good experience. During the time I was in the Army, before my wife came down, I decided to sign up for a correspondence course that the Army ran, the United States Armed Forces Institute or something like that, and USAFI course and in personnel, and that later on uh, came into uh, uh, very usefulness uh, to me. Looking back uh, uh, on my Army service, I think it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Fortunately, fate prevented my losing my life uh, or uh, many of the other things that could have happened to me. And uh, looking back on it, I'm, I'm glad I was drafted, but at the time it didn't seem like such a great idea. But I think it's a And certainly in today's Army, I would not discourage anybody from thinking of volunteering because I think the Army has its act together from everything I've seen. And I think they are the most important thing, one of the most important things in our country because they protect us from all of the bad things that there are out there in the world. Many of them are happening right now, even as we speak. The Colonel gave me a letter of recommendation for a different company going back into civilian life. As it happened, my own company gave me a very good uh, boost in salary. They took me back and gave me a job in personnel, 
and that's where those USAFI courses came in. I stayed in that in human relations and, and some other administrative posts the rest of my time in civilian life. I still look back at the Army time uh, with humor uh, and with fondness. And uh, I hope that uh, uh, many other people will uh, feel the same if they make the choice. And I think a volunteer army is a whole lot better than a drafty army, if that's possible. The Korean War has sometimes, or quite often, I think, been referred to as the Korean conflict. Does that bother you? It kind of does. They, they called it a police action at the time. Their question comes up as to what the extent to which a president can commit a country to armed conflict with other countries and the extent to which it's appropriate to assassinate other people in other countries as well, but I won't get into that subject now. Not everybody agrees with me on it. I gained a new perspective being in the Army on the, the number of things that are, uh, are hazards out there in the Army, even though I was a history major and I studied a lot about the 25 million people that uh, Genghis Khan murdered in, in his day. I, and the number of people who were killed in that bubonic plague. I still think it's a dangerous world out here, and I think we're very fortunate to have a, an extremely competent armed force protecting us. In thinking back to that time, I, and I know you said that you felt an allegiance to your country and so forth, but did you have any strong political feelings about what we were trying to do, be it in support or thinking maybe not so much in support? No, I guess I've always felt that any nation that attacks another nation ought to uh, be pushed back. And that's, uh, I think, probably during the time I was in the Army uh, and the time since, I feel that North Korea should uh, should have been pushed back. North Korea was kind of a compromise, as we all know, that uh, came at the end of World War II and Russia got into the war just in time to uh, take over Manchuria and a few other uh, places, uh, Sakhalin Island, I believe. Uh, and uh, North Korea, somebody decided they drew a line on the map at the 38th parallel and say, okay, communists above that and capitalists below that, without realizing what they were doing. And of course, even today, we have problems uh, concerning North Korea. Makes it pretty obvious that politics uh, kind of pushes the army around and then the army pushes the people around sometimes. I'd be interested in your thoughts today as a history buff and, and a veteran as well. There was the issue of MacArthur wanting to go ahead and invade China, I think, uh, which led to his firing. In your perspective at this stage, do you think that's something that we should have done, uh, invade China? I think probably that would have been the dumbest thing we could have done, quite frankly. Uh, I did learn just the other day there are currently 1.3 billion Chinese, which means there are more than four Chinese people for every American. And uh, to tackle a country that size, especially much of the reading I've done about the Chinese volunteers coming across the yellow and, uh, and sending our Marines back into South Korea ultimately, or our army back into South Korea as well, uh, indicates to me that in Asia, at least at that time <clears throat> and possibly today, the feeling about life is a lot different. The Chinese would think nothing of sending a, a thousand men into a murderous fire just to find out where our guns were. Uh, Americans seem to value life a little differently, and I don't mean to offend any Chinese by saying that. It may be changing fast, but I think we learned in Vietnam 
that life is very different for Asiatic people at that time than there was for American people. So it seemed. Of course, if you're the one that got shot, it didn't matter what, whether you were Chinese or North Vietnamese or what, uh, you were dead. How do you think history has treated the U.S. involvement uh, and the military effort uh, during this period? I think Americans are probably concerned about uh, Vietnam. Uh, I happen to think Vietnam was probably the worst war we ever could have gotten into. And uh, I think I'm, there are many who share that thinking. And I think Americans, as a result of that, as a result of the fact that the Tonkin Gulf episode was mostly a fabrication, or at least that's what we're told, uh, that got us into the war, that killed 65,000 Americans. I think Americans are very, very cherry about getting caught up in another war that they don't want to be in. Afghanistan is a pretty good example of that. Uh, Afghanistan uh, uh, threw out the British, the British Empire. Afghanistan threw out the Soviet Union. Uh, and Afghanistan seems to be a place where Americans keep dying. And I think Americans feel they'd rather not mess around with that sort of thing. With uh, your military experience, do you think that helped to make you more patriotic, less patriotic, or had no real effect? <laughs> That's a pretty good question. Uh, I, I guess I feel my country is comes first, that uh, this has been a, a wonderful nation. We have a, a wonderful political system. Uh, occasionally it uh, misfires, but it's better than anything else I've ever heard of. I think every American should be patriotic enough that if their country calls on them to do something that they the country feels is right, that they feel is right, that they should go and, and do it, even though it involves some self-sacrifice on their part. It's unfortunate that politics gets involved so much as it does in decisions that ultimately turn out to be military decisions. But uh, Americans owe a lot to our country. There's so many places in the world, and I've been many of them, where I would not want to live because the politicians were running things. Finally, I did want to ask about something post-military career, and that's the honor flight that you took to Washington. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yes. Uh, a few years ago, I learned that uh, uh, if one uh, sends in an application, that one can very well be selected for a flight to uh, Washington, D.C. for a tour of all of the uh, important uh, places in, in Washington, D.C., or at least a lot of them. It was for veterans of uh, World War II, who are dying off fairly fast at this point, and uh, veterans of the Korean War, which I happen to be. And I was selected for this, and it was a wonderful experience. It, it all took place in one day. It did not cost a single penny for me. Someone had contributed a great deal of money to this, and if I could think of their name at this point, I would certainly mention it. Essentially, uh, each two of us were assigned a person, a younger person, to kind of keep us from uh, getting into trouble, falling down on, on the steps of the Capitol or something, uh, through the entire day. And those were volunteers as well who had to pay their own money for the, to be there. And we visited Arlington National Cemetery, which was an awesome experience for me, along with many, many other places, Lincoln Memorial, et cetera, et cetera. The, at the very beginning, we met in the, our group met in the Columbia Airport. Uh, we, there were people cheering us there. I don't know where they got those people to cheer us. We got on a plane, which was just part of an, uh, a commercial flight, but we were all together. And uh, we were treated like uh, honored guests through the entire experience. When we arrived in, uh, at the Washington uh, airport, we were cheered by another group of people. 
We were treated with great respect and great honor through the entire day. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, we were again put on a plane where people were cheering us and thanking us for our service. We arrived back in Columbia late at night, and once again, there were cheer a group of people cheering us and thanking us for our service. Perhaps for those who have not had that kind of experience, let me say that anybody who has served honorably in the United States military, whether it be the Coast Guard or the Navy or the Marines or the Army, deserves our thanks for protecting our country from all of the bad things that can happen to a nation which lets its guard down. And I want to applaud such people as being the most important people in our country. Uh, you being counted as one of those. And we, again, thank you for your service and particularly thank you for sharing your military experiences with us today. Well, thank you, Mr. Ivey. We hope you enjoyed this installment, episode 11, entitled Drafted. Bob's military experiences, as shared today, do indeed demonstrate that there is humor and humility in all things, however dire, and that fate, in whatever way defined, is a major and constant determinant throughout our lives. The music selection for today is the U.S. Army theme song as performed by the U.S. Army Band and Chorus. As always, on behalf of Bob Johnson, this is technical novice Mr. Ivy wishing you well and inviting you back for our next episode of Senior Moments with Bob Johnson. And the army